Hey, welcome listeners. This is another episode of Filmed in Canada, a podcast about Canadian movies. I'm William Lee. Joining me again are... Alexander Cairns. And Chris Avery. All right. Chris, would you rather marry a lawyer or a doctor? <laughs> uh, I don't care as long as they drive a BMW. Okay. Seems like a lot of the lawyers and doctors are driving Audis these days. Oh, see, that's the thing. I'm just stuck in the 90s. I just assume that they're driving BMWs. Yeah, I, I got to get with the it. New the new BMW? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Maybe that was unfair to, to throw you away because you're, uh, of, the, of the three of us, you're already married. I don't know if that's relevant to anything. I don't even use that. <laughs> I think it's very relevant to today's conversation, actually. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Would you rather drive an Audi or a BMW? I think an Audi. All right. Yeah. I would prefer an Audi, too. It seems a bit less douchey. <laughs> I agree. I agree. All right. Today we're going to be talking about the 1994 movie Double Happiness, directed by Mina Shum, uh, starring Sandra Oh, Kalen Keith Rennie, and... I think it's Callum. I think it's Callum? Yeah. Okay. I get, I get, I'm outvoted on that one, because Chris <laughs> is not... I named Callum. Okay. Callum Keith Rennie. And... Um, Other... Asian actors that yes. have not appeared in many other movies that we don't know <laughs> yeah. about. Actually, um, the guy the guy who plays the father, he's he appears in a lot of movies. Yeah. With for locally shot things. Yeah, Stephen oh, okay. Stephen Chang. Stephen Chang, yeah, all the way back to First Blood, I believe. Really, he's the highest ranked grandmaster, wow. 1977 grand champion <laughs> of what I don't know. It's, I guess kung fu. I would have assumed it was chess. Oh. oh, it says kung fu later it? in his, okay. his thing, but I think <laughs> that's a referencing bit. a movie, not not his chess. Uh, his write up is a little bit uh, incomplete, or just needs a bit of polish to connect the points. <laughs> it's a very strange way to start an actor's bio: a highest ranked grandmaster. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. And stick around after this talk about double happiness. We may be uh, just having a little uh, roundtable about things we've been seeing lately. Cool. cool. Excellent. All right. So double happiness. Do you know if it is, in fact, the first independent Canadian feature directed by a woman of Asian descent? Is this... Because uh, I, I, I read that in some articles. Um, it seems like, it seems like a, a big thing to hang on the movie, but it could be true. As far as I know, just from following Canadian films, so there was, you know, Patricia Rosema and Wheeler, there were other female filmmakers, but as far as I know, she would be the first um, Asian-Canadian filmmaker mm -hmm. for a feature. Um, that's a good time. In 94? That's a good time? It finally happened? Well, yeah, I think it's just sure. that's any time you can make that claim. Um, it, it would come at an interesting time in terms of uh, the uh, immigration history of Vancouver. Because uh, it would be um, around that time in the mid-90s, there's an influx of, of um, Chinese immigrants because uh, Hong Kong is about to be handed back to the Chinese. And Canada um, makes a new, uh, around, is it the early 90s or early 80s, Canada actually makes a new category of immigrant called the, uh, called the investor class or something. Oh. And so that, because uh, they wanted people to come to Canada to hide their money from China. Um, oh. So there was. So and now the government's trying to prevent that from happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this this would be uh, it would mark sort of the second wave of Chinese immigrants um, that are coming in. Um, they would be distinguished from the first wave, which would be um, uh, people who came here to sort of start life from scratch, more or less. 
um, the investor class would come with money. And so they're, uh, they're different demographic of Chinese immigrants than what came before. So it, it causes a little bit of tension, uh, or maybe, maybe you shouldn't say tension, but it just it's, it adds a different element to the demographic mix of Vancouver at that time. So do we understand that the father and the uncle were wealthy and had servants, and then when dad immigrated, he left his plans of being an architect behind? So would he have been middle or upper class and then immigrated and now is a security guard? But yeah, there was reference made to, to the father. Or was it the father p- having servants, or one of the characters at least? Yeah. yeah. They also say that they fled at a time when there was like political turmoil, right? right. Um, so so it's, I think it's plausible that they were sort of at a, like a middle class or upper middle class, and they would have felt they were targeted by uh, the communists, and that would have been reason to leave. Um, Mina Shum herself uh, is uh, born in Hong Kong, and moves to Canada with her family when she's one year old. She grows up in Vancouver. Double Happiness then has a lot of autobiographical elements to it. Um, but her father was a security guard as well. Oh. And um, so Mina Shum would uh, study theater at UBC and, uh, and then take some further, uh, some further training in, in film at UBC and in Toronto. It really weirds me out that you're like, talking in the present tense. Did I? How's that? Like, she moves to Canada when she's one year old. Oh, did I say that? Yeah. Instead of she moved to Canada. I don't know. I is, think that, is, that, is that standard for, like... When I write, I would certainly do it in the past tense. I guess it's just... Have I done it before? I don't know. I guess when I'm trying to piece out a narrative in the way that I see a movie, everything's happening in the present tense. In the present right? tense. Okay. Yeah. But no, you're right. It's just, so she did these things in the past, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> It might be a radio thing, though, too. I don't know. <laughs> like, it sounds like it's been done before. Like, you're not you're not the only person to have ever done this. But it still just works me out. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that is neither here nor there. All right. Um, another thing about Mina Shum's uh, family history, she really does have a brother who was disowned by the family. Is oh, that wow. right? Wow. They don't, and they don't really get into the backstory of why that happened. Hmm. In the movie, no. Yeah, I think you're yeah you're left to infer a lot of things, or maybe it's just um, that some of it just comes from such a personal place for her um, as the writer director of this piece, right? Yeah. I want to know how authentic it is to say that Winston helped uh, Pearl make snowballs when we know that it doesn't really snow here, right? Uh, I, I've made snowballs. <laughs> okay, in I'm just saying. <laughs> I did I, that did stick out to me when it was when it was said, but. I mean, if it's an autobiographical story, like she obviously knows Vancouver, she must right. have. Yeah, she must have made snowballs at some point in her memory, and that just stuck out, I guess. But, right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not a snowy climate. So Mina Shum, as a filmmaker, she's done a lot of short films. Uh, she continues to make short films, and she's also uh, she works in episodic television from time to time. Uh, Double Happiness is her first feature movie. I have to say, on the DVD box, it was <laughs> the worst tagline. It's a story of growing up and moving out. <laughs> Doesn't that not seem like a... Just little, very generic. Yeah, very generic and completely on the nose, but not very interesting. No. Yeah. But then isn't the story very generic? Which is not to take away from it. Well, we haven't even established what the story is yeah. yet, so All right. back off, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, someone, someone give, us a, give us a rundown of the story. Tell us about Jade. 
Jade is a 22-year-old uh, Chinese-Canadian woman who wants to become an actress. So we see her auditioning uh, and working part-time in what might be a family's or someone, a close family friend's, maybe like a second-hand store. Oh, okay. Yeah. So an aunt's uh The one who was store. always wearing weird hats. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of a coming-of-age story where she is challenging the boundaries of uh, her family's expectations. They want her to get married to a doctor or a lawyer and do something practical instead of uh, becoming an actress. And she ends up falling in love with a Caucasian guy. A really awkward Caucasian guy, too. A very awkward Caucasian guy. Yeah. <laughs> I think his acting, acting chops have uh, improved since 94. I'm no kidding. He was doing like a fucking Christopher Walken thing there. <laughs> We're it's talking like, about uh, Callum Keith Rennie, yeah. who plays Mark. Yeah. It, like, he totally reminded me of of uh, Christopher Walken. And as I was watching it, I was thinking of that James Bond movie that Christopher Walken's in that I always forget the name of. A View? A View to a Kill. Uh, you know, the, you have to have chemistry between the leads. And while I appreciate what they were doing, there is no, I, there's no reason for her to fall in love with him. I don't Although, understand what, when why... We get, when we get to the ending of the movie... I think there's an interesting discussion around how it ends in yeah. respect to the, with respect to their relationship. I don't know that the chemistry necessarily matters for the story, but we'll get to that later. Okay. So the other members of um, of Jade's family, um, her younger sister Pearl, and her her father and mother. Um, as we said earlier, so the father works as a security guard, and I guess the mother is a stay at home mother. But they are. Um, we see that she's repeatedly being set up on blind dates with with nice Chinese men um, that are that seem to be like um, the children of friends of the family. So it's all within this uh, this inner circle of community. Um, but she um, so Jade goes along with it because she wants to keep her family happy. But she's also pursuing her own happiness. So that I think that's where the title of the movie comes from is that pursuit of. Of, uh, of two versions of happiness. Right. Is that is that a reasonable pursuit? That's what we will find out. I feel like on the DVD box, there's a different explanation of double happiness. Oh? Oh, really? I don't know where I saw that, but it, I, I feel like it's like actually a Chinese cultural thing called, like that they call it double happiness, and it's like the mother wants her. I don't know. Uh, probably it refers to some sort of Chinese... Um, I don't know where I saw that. Some kind of Chinese meaning. But someone can write us an email and tell us. Yeah, write it to us in Chinese. <laughs> and we'll get Google Translate, I guess. <laughs> uh, you speak uh, Chinese? I speak a little bit of Cantonese, um, right. but I, don't, I can't read it. So no. Much like just the like Jade. <laughs> Let's just start about the story then. Uh, it is a coming-of-age story. It is a, a leaving-home story. I think it has parallels to like a coming-out story, right? Um, while it certainly, I, I feel it comes from a place of authenticity. It feels like um, the, uh, the material originated with, um, with genuineness. It is sort of an interchangeable story of, of those themes, don't you feel? Like is, is there anything particularly unique about this telling of that story, other than its sort of uh, cultural setting? But to me, that's what makes it unique. Yeah. You know, I moved here in 91 or 92, and I came from a very homogenous, uh, primarily Caucasian community in, on Vancouver Island. And so seeing this movie with my friend who, in 1994, it was the first English-language Canadian movie I saw in the theater. 
and she was actually uh, in a relationship with a Caucasian man who was an English major, because we all met at SFU, <laughs> and she had to lead this double life of pretending that uh, she still lived at home, but she had to leave the do- lead the life to tell her boyfriend that she was just moving home after a bad roommate situation, and then telling her parents that she was moving in with the Caucasian, but they had separate rooms. So this double life, I don't know, it really touched a nerve with me because I was friends with someone who was going through exactly what Jade was going through, and I had just never been exposed to that. I'd never been exposed to, like, heavy familial expectations, cultural expectations. I mean, when you rebelled where I was from, it just meant that you were, you know smoking weed and chasing boys it didn't your parents didn't really expect you to do much just be a secretary get a job so seeing this movie in 94 that was fresh to me because i didn't know that other people had those kind of family pressures Hmm. you know we all just left home at 18 because that's what our parents wanted us to do the idea that you would disown someone for sticking around for, for wanting to move out i'd never heard of that before Parents actually kicked kids out or made them pay rent as soon as we graduated from high school. So this was totally new to me. Hmm. So it didn't seem generic at all because I'd never been exposed to it. Okay. Yeah, I think like when I'm thinking of just a a well-made genre movie, like this is, I guess, romantic comedy. Like there wasn't, I guess the the comedy more came from the cultural things, which which maybe I, I didn't relate to as much. So I wasn't like hooting and hollering throughout the movie but <laughs> i definitely i definitely found parts of it funny but i guess when i'm thinking of like a well-made genre movie a well-made romantic comedy it's taking those sort of broadly established elements and using them to tell a story that that someone hasn't seen before and and it seems like at least at least for for chris and and i would say myself that that came across because I, I was seeing something that I hadn't seen before. That's interesting to hear your two uh, pers- perspectives on that. If it wasn't, uh, if it hasn't been stated before or made obvious, I'm Chinese, and some of the things that this, uh, some of the things that this family goes through are very familiar to me. And in fact, I actually remember my older sister when she talked about moving out, that she was threatened with being disowned. So I, I guess um, when I was watching it, I just felt like, oh yeah, this is just. This is a standard story, but um, but maybe I'm I'm a bit um, I'm a bit blind to the fact that it might not be in other cultures. So so the weird thing about about growing up in Vancouver, where there there are a lot of visible minorities in the mix. When you go to public school, you're not really you don't really feel like you're set apart because of your skin color or, or anything. There's just there's, there's already that group of people over there. You can hang out with them, or you can hang out with the other group of a different skin color. Right. It just mixes up. So right. I guess uh, it never, um, uh, growing up here, it never fully occurred to me that my experience was unique, if, if, if that makes sense. It just, I made an assumption that everyone goes through similar things, or we all, we all just have the, the similar issues with our parents. Yeah, I think the, those growing pains are... Uh we all have different types of growing pains within our family, but uh, again, I think Jade's story to me was something I'd never been exposed to. Do you do you seek out stories about Chinese culture, do you, or do you do you find it? Do you think it's important that that aspect of who you are is represented on the silver screen? No, but I wonder if my perspective on that is 
is, uh, if not unique, skewed by where I grew up and the people that I was uh, that I interacted with. It never it it never occurred to me that my story or the story of my community was underrepresented. That's interesting because I, Peter and I saw the celluloid closet mm. in at the Ridge uh, whenever it came out a long time ago. And, and the most interesting thing about the celluloid closet, which talks about um, gays and lesbians in film, was that the talking heads in that movie were just so hungry to see their story up on screen. Unfortunately, you always had to die if you were a gay or a lesbian, mm. or you were just portrayed in a very negative light. But they were so hungry to see someone who was like them on screen. And that's what made, I think, that documentary so profound is how much it meant to just see a glimpse of, you know, Shirley MacLaine being a lesbian in the children's hour. Or mm-hmm. um, So I think it would be different if you grew up in Prince George or, I don't know, Saskatoon, would you be more hungry to see people that looked and acted more like you on screen so that you could say, oh, well, I understand that story. That story is similar to my story. But we have such a wealth of multiculturalism here in Vancouver that um, you felt like your story was was out there. Or maybe not that I needed the story to be told. Right. Because it just seemed like it was commonplace to me. So I went to the, I went to the movies for, for escape or to find out about a different experience. Right. So, so I guess the idea of hearing about my experience didn't excite me, but then, but at the same time, I um, I was unaware of how it was underserved um, in, right. in those days, because just because it wasn't it wasn't something that I sought out. Um, but I, but I recognize that uh, double happiness. I think it's it's in some ways in, in its in its own right, it's groundbreaking. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's get back into the movie. I think we should. Uh, I'd love to talk about the performances and some of the stylistic flourishes that are in the movie. Yeah. I think Alexander's hungry to talk about the opening credits. Okay. Uh, well, so the opening credits are cool, but then also the... Uh, I Wait, forget. That does it, does it start too. with her talking to the screen, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I forget what she says. Uh, well, she... Um, Just establishes that she's an actor? It seems to. Yeah. Like, yeah so she uh, she has like one of those um, copperboard marker type things um, to like when, when you start a take. So she does she she does that to mark her take and then I think on the I think on the board it says doesn't it say like Jade auditions or something like that Jade monologue okay yeah um, so it it is really kind of breaking down this barrier between performance and uh, uh, the artifice of of the story and and the uh, and and the actual character's life um, where like we see the actress becoming the the character or something. So mm-hmm. she gives she so she del- she delivers a monologue where she introduces her family. She she describes them as very Chinese if you know what I mean. Right. Oh yeah, and she's kind of she's establishing that these kind of stories about Chinese families don't get told. And that she's talking about the Brady bunch. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like it's something I forget what the comment was, but something about like it's like imagine we're the Brady bunch or something. Right. Was it something like that? She imagined that they could be a family like the Brady Bunch, but yeah. then, but then they wouldn't be on TV. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting to remember. Yeah, what did you think about that opening? Opening the movie with her delivering that monologue directly to the camera. I actually, I, I liked the first instance of that. I found as those monologues kept getting reintroduced, they were less effective. Yeah, every, I agree. Yeah, every one of the main characters gets that moment, and. 
um, yeah, I, I cared for it less as it went on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. Yeah, I didn't. There was almost like I can almost imagine that those were the screen tests, even though it, like the lighting and everything looks more polished. But it is. It, it just feels like it was um, actors trying to deliver their best version of this monologue. And I and even when, um, or especially when the mother delivers her monologue, I think it's just it just feels overacted for that uh, for what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think if they all sort of followed a similar theme of like the types of stories that they would want to tell but can't because they they wouldn't be on TV, that might have had more of a an impact. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't consistent what they were t- choosing to talk about, I guess. Because the mom story packs a real wallop. Yeah. I mean, that's a really tragic story. And I was just surprised by inserting that in there when other, you know, when Jade seems more playful. Yeah. Mom's is a heavy story. Yeah. I, yeah, that one threw me out of the movie for a moment because mm-hmm. it was the way that that lands. Um, and then trying to go back into the, the present day story was very awkward. I I would have preferred if like because she she talks about uh, the death of children and she she relates a story from back home uh, about a about a woman who um, who lost her child and the circumstances in which that woman lost her child is is so cruel that it just uh, yeah it just interrupts the movie I would have rather that had been delivered as like a legend or something so that you could you could kind of feel like oh yeah that's right. that's something that would be in her in her mind in her psyche but maybe it doesn't have to be real right but anyway that that's uh that's a storytelling choice and i just yeah i felt it very disruptive for uh, i did too so these um so these moments where the characters deliver the monologues to the camera i think that's that's sort of the the stylistic touches that make this movie unique um and also make me feel like it is the type of movie that that a first-time director makes to to show off her creativity. Um, I don't think it necessarily serves the the narrative um, so much as make a stamp, make a statement about what kind of uh, what kind of a style stylist she is. Right. The other thing is uh, there's there's, a, there's several instances where there's slow motion used. And and in small doses, I was enjoying those. But then the more we got those slow motion sequences, I was questioning why those were in there other than to just, here's, here's a sequence that feels different from the rest of the movie. Like, did, can you know, the, shot can on, the shot on the swing I enjoyed. Right. That was effective slow motion. Yeah. I thought that that was, uh, that was clever and, uh, and cute. I liked yeah. it. Okay. I can't remember what the other instances were. I think no, I can't either. Can you remind me? When they're getting to the cars, and that's at least two of the dates, when she's walking to the car oh, and getting, okay. that's done in slow motion. Mm-hmm. There's there's even the car driving out of the driveway and up the up the alley, which which would be which happens at least twice. That's so that's in somewhat slow motion, um, or has like a, a a specific color treatment done to it. Uh, when when she goes with one of the dates into the nightclub. Mm-hmm. That the entrance into the nightclub is done in slow motion. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a couple of times where it happens, and it draws attention to itself. And I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why they have to be there. I think it's the giddiness of the first time director. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that excitement of I'm going to put a swipe in here that looks like an hourglass. I'm going to do slow motion. I think it's just the giddiness of a first time director. Like I can, and this is, uh, you know, adding something 
fresh every 17 minutes to the story or something. I think it's, uh, well, it may not be 100% effective. I, I think it is just um, the excitement of being able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that one sort of stylistic flourish that, that did really work well, really well for, for me at least was the um, after the opening credits scene uh, when they're all having dinner and the camera's on the the pedestal that I guess rotates and ha- I don't know. On a table. The, I, I, I think I, they call it a lazy Susan. It's it's like a platform on your dinner table on a on a Chinese dinner table or, or in a Chinese restaurant. Is that uh, what a Chinese lazy Susan is? Yeah. So you could put your the shared dishes on there and they rotate. I thought it was a chair of some kind. Lazy like, boy, lazy my, that's Susan. That's what I had in my mind. I don't know. I never actually knew what it was. Okay. <laughs> I just always thought it was a chair. But <laughs> and then also I think that's probably confused in my mind partly because there's this Seinfeld parody where Kramer creates a thing called the leaning Susan and it's just like a two by four that you carry around and you can lean on and it's called the leaning Susan because in this parody Susan's character comes back from the dead and George ends up having to marry her again (laughs) it's so good but anyway that's the leaning Susan but so yeah so there's this lazy Susan I guess on the table and um, and the camera's on it, and so you're, it's sort of panning around to the characters as they're talking to each other. It, it was just really well choreographed. I found like it. Like, I it, loved it's, it. It's like, it's not it's not rotating to the char- character as they're talking like so deliberately that it's like oh like let's cut to the next character, cut to the next character. But it just feels very fluid and natural. And like at one at some points, it's panning past a person as they're talking, but they're just saying something quick anyway. And then it's going to the person who really needs to talk. And it was just really well well mapped out and shot. I think I and thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I just thought that. I would put it up there with, you know, when you see something fresh like the Steadicam chase scene in Raising Arizona or uh, the casino or the nightclub scene in Goodfellas, which, of course, is parodied in the mm-hmm. movie Swingers. It's just exciting. Mm-hmm. I thought that was exciting to see the La- Lazy Susan um, filming. I, I, You know, if, if the movie could have sustained that freshness for the whole, you know, 85 minutes, it would have been an A. It's a solid C+, plus, but... That was a great way to start it, and the animation sequence that starts it, loved it. Yeah, it reminded me of the Pink Panther. I thought it was charming and fun. I thought it was just whimsical and delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one one thing to point out as well is um, the soundtrack, and and that gets introduced mm-hmm. in, the, in the credits. I guess with um, it's done by Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, who did the um, the theme song for Kids in the Hall. That's right. Yeah. And I, th- I thought that was a, I thought it was an effective soundtrack. Absolutely, like it's kind of loose and playful. You know, just a rock band having a good time. I wish there was um, there was a bit more of them on the soundtrack. I, I just thought there was a lot of a lot of moments, uh, a lot of like stretches in the movie where it's a bit too quiet. Much like this podcast. <laughs> just to talk about something that Alexander talked about on the my internship in Canada podcast about what you thought what made it really Canadian is people speaking English and French yeah. just interchanging like you'll start yeah. in I'll say something to you in French and you respond in English what makes this movie so Vancouver is that you have the children speaking exclusively in English to their parents who are almost exclusively speaking in Cantonese yeah. so I loved that that was just to me such a Vancouver thing that the kids are speaking English to their parents so both parties are understanding, but working primarily in their native language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of um, 
of like Star Wars, where <laughs> characters can speak Hutties and other characters can speak English. It's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. <laughs> yeah. No Jabba, no longer. Uta Guta Solo. In relation to the our discussion on my internship in Canada as well, um, it didn't come up that much in this movie, I guess. But one one of the things I, I mentioned was the casual racism toward the toward the black character in that movie. There was at least one instance of that in this movie, where um, where Jade isn't let into the nightclub. I was confused by that. Does her friend get to go in and she does not? Yeah, I think it was because she was with a white guy. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. And um, then, and then, and then the guy, the, like the white guy, Callum Keith Rennie's character, that the Mark, that they don't let in. I think that's more so just because he's a weirdo, right? Because <laughs> he just acted really weird when he went mm. up to them. Yeah, I don't know if I was ready to read that moment the same way. Just because I, I think I was trying to maybe I was just trying to be generous toward the toward those characters or the or the atmosphere of the movie. Um, it could be that because she looked like a loser, they they weren't letting her in, or maybe it was because she was Chinese. I think, I, yeah. Or she wasn't hot enough. Yeah. I mean, that's what bouncers do. If you're behind the velvet mm. rope, they let in the hotties. I was I was watching the movie with a friend who is not white, and she seemed to immediately identify it as a racial hmm. thing, and was like, "Yeah, if that happened to me, I would have just gone home." Okay, which she does, not to her home. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> Interracial love scene. Yes, now, that's pretty unique. Did that come? Did that come? Um, that development was it very sudden and surprising for you? So she, while she's waiting in that lineup to go into the club, uh, that's where she meets Mark. And I had trouble in that scene reading Jade's feelings because she she won't look him in the eye. I couldn't. She's kind of giggling to herself a little bit, and I couldn't tell if she was nervous or if she was like just trying to ignore this guy. But well, at first she was pretending that she couldn't speak English to avoid talking to him because yeah. he was probably a weirdo. Mm. She's like, "Oh, no." But but very soon after that, they decide to leave together and we uh, and we cut to their uh, to their love scene. Talk of clam chowder makes people frisky. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an aphrodisiac? Well, let's say yes. <laughs> I feel like one of the shellfish is, is or maybe all the shellfish. It's the zinc. Okay. So you thought they fell into bed too quickly? That there wasn't enough simmer I going did. on. I did, and I was watching this. I was watching this with my with my girlfriend, and she even said out loud to me, "What are they having sex already?" <laughs> it just seemed so. It seemed so sudden. But did you not find that strange? Uh, yeah, I didn't really give much thought to it because it's just like, oh, it's a romantic comedy. Like it has to happen. Okay, I guess I just didn't. I didn't. I didn't feel I had enough clues about Jade as a character to know that she was um, that she was so slutty. I think. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, <I> think- <laughs> whoa. Went from, <laughs> went from racist remarks on the last episode about indigenous people to <laughs> slut shaming on this episode. Come on, man. No, no, I'm, I'm, we- I'm, I'm pro slut. <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason that it happened so quickly is that she and her girlfriend say, how long has it been? And she's like, oh, God, I don't even know. So she was just going to get her pipes cleaned that night, no matter what. So... That's why she sleeps with him right away, because it has been so long she can't even remember. And also, I think, I think it is well established by that point that her character is seeking a new kind of cultural experience and seeking to differentiate herself from her upbringing. So, I, yeah, I, I think she, she's justified in being quick to, 
to jump into bed. And again, when we were talking earlier about um, seeing your stories up on screen, the my girlfriend whose story was very similar to this movie, uh, there was a Wesley Snipes Wesley Wesley Snipes movie that came out Wesley's in the late nineties called uh, One Night Stand, and in it he has uh, an Asian American wife. And my girlfriend commented that was one of the first times she'd ever seen an interracial couple that they don't mention the race for the whole movie. Right. So in Double Happiness, we see an interracial couple. The fact that he's Caucasian has to play into it because that serves the narrative. But uh, that's how unusual it is to see an Asian and a Caucasian have a lovemaking scene in a movie. It's still pretty rare. Yeah. Hmm. It, or, or Asian so and any other color. It plays it plays into it for the parents, but it doesn't play into it for them. Like they don't right. talk about the fact that they're no. ethnically different. No. Yeah. The movie is is carried by Sandra O's oh performance. I think she's really good in this. Yeah. Yeah, and when you see the other people around her who are trying, but are a little stiffer, you see that uh, she is doing the heavy lifting in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so we still think that Callum Keith Rennie was. Um, to walk and ask. <laughs> Can I ask where they got ice cream cones from in an industrial park? Because <laughs> twice it comes up, and I don't see an ice cream stand, and we don't hear any background, you know, yeah. of the, the noise of the ice cream van. No. So, surprising. more ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, like the locations, though. I yeah. thought the locations were really fresh. We never call the city Vancouver... We do use the word Pender Street. One of the doctors yeah, right. has an office on Pender Street. Uh, obviously, we know it's Vancouver, but I, I thought that the locations were, were really well done. They were very unique, and uh, my mind was trying to scramble, like, where is that New Brighton Park? Where I don't even know where yeah. that is. Well, yeah, so, so I liked it. W- uh, last episode, we talked to Tony, Joe, and Taylor Ramos, who have that YouTube channel. Have you seen any of their mm-hmm. videos? And have you seen the Vancouver Never Plays yes. one? Yeah, so... There's a clip in that one from this movie where they're in the park taking the photo and then the rain comes down. Right. So that was in Tony's video. I can't place that. Is that Queen Elizabeth Park? I thought it was Stanley Park no, where the totems are. No, no, that's, um, that's Burnaby Oh, it's Burnaby Mountain. Mountain. Burnaby. Right. Yeah, yeah, it seemed right. like it was way far out of the city. I couldn't, but I couldn't quite tell mm-hmm. where it was. Yeah, so that's, you know that location? Yeah, I know that location. Cool. I can take you there later. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's get some pictures. Yeah. Um, I agree. I think it uh, uses some fresh locations. And it uses them to to comment about the family's social standing. Absolutely. Without, yeah, without, like, really making it so deliberate. Yes. Yeah. It's um, close to train tracks. It's close to an industrial park. Um, they have a little garden. Like Everything looks very modest. So I think that the locations that they use uh, really demonstrate that this is you know, a working class family. Mm-hmm. So I was saying I wanted to get back to how the movie ends in relation to the, for lack of a better word, since I just said relation, the relationship between Jade and Mark. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What were you, what were you saying about the relationship? Um, I don't know if it was you, Chris, or you, William, that was saying it like wasn't, it didn't feel like there was enough there for It for wasn't cooked to, enough, but I mean, I've to, seen for enough. For to like go off with her family or, or like leave her family behind because of this relationship. I've seen a lot of romantic comedies and you know, 50% of the time the leads have enough chemistry that you Ke- believe the chemistry, that's what, yeah. Yeah. That you would believe they would uh, become lovers and, and start a new life together. The fact that this isn't fully cooked, it, it doesn't 
go that far outside of romantic comedies in general. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe it isn't Mark that makes her leave her family, but it's a catalyst for change for her because we know she's restless and she's hungry for change. So whether the the Mark thing is fully cooked or not, I think it's just a catalyst for her to uh, to move out and to yeah. say, I am going to uh, put myself first. Yeah. The whole chain of events that happens for her to get kicked out of her house and disowned or whatever is Mark shows up with a bouquet of flowers and they kiss on the on the porch while while her parents are driving in with their uncle and it's like oh we've got family visiting like how could you this is disgraceful whatever and then and then like she moves out and that's it but the movie ends with her alone in a new apartment with a room full of boxes and she's on the phone calling mark he's not even there and she's saying like oh we need to we need to or like so and so is coming over for dinner or something but i got the sense that he wasn't showing up Oh, really? Yeah, I got the sense that Mark was out of the picture that that relationship was over even though oh. like like that that in in terms of like if you were to follow that character 5 years down the road she's, there's no way she's with Mark. And so like you said it's sort of an impetus for change like she doesn't actually make the conscious decision to say I'm going to tell my parents that I'm in a relationship with a white guy and I'm going to that that is going to result in me getting disowned and that's my decision. It happens by chance because he shows up on a whim and so um it yeah to me it really doesn't matter whether there's chemistry in their relationship or not because it's just something that happened very suddenly they saw each other a couple more times and then he showed up and fucked everything up but didn't really fuck everything up because she wants to get out anyway and well, so her, i think i think she's on her own she asked her mother did you date and her mom said <laughs> uh no so the idea that she's dating, not that she's given up everything so that she can be in a long-term relationship with a white guy, it's that she wants the freedom to date. Mm-hmm. She wants the freedom to come and go as she pleases. Yeah, I don't I don't think that uh, she and Mark got married and, and had two kids, but she's free to date now, mm-hmm. and maybe she will date Mark and other people. Yeah, I didn't. And Mark's coming over for the painting and dinner, but it's not. it doesn't have to be a romantic thing or a love thing. It's just mm-hmm. a... Now I've got my own place, and I've got my autonomy and yeah. independence. I didn't think Mark was the one either, but I think it sure, certainly establishes that that they may have a short future together in in the interim. Yeah, yeah. So I I, I guess I was a bit more hopeful uh, about the ending than you were, Alexander. Well, no, and I don't think it's a pessimistic view at all. I th- I think it's actually a very bold statement about a, a story about a woman that she doesn't need a man. And um, I think I think it's something that that I've I've started to see more frequently in in films directed by women that I've been trying to seek out. Like it, it definitely is. It's atypical of the romantic comedy genre that they don't end up together at the end, or and who knows if they do or whatever. But it's not firmly established. I think it is hopeful that she's on her own. Yeah, she didn't move in that's with what Mark. She wants. Right. I think also it's it's a it's a trait of of independent filmmakers and and especially ones that are early in their career is that they they have the guts to give you an ambiguous ending or a little downbeat ending they give the audience the credit to to just take it for what it is they don't have to tie it up for the audience um and i think yeah i think it is a bold way to end the story as well yeah yeah i, I when i saw that ending uh, i thought back to take this waltz which have you seen that chris no not yet okay um, I did listen to your episode okay. about it. So, you, so you're spoiled on the yeah. the ending. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, because that movie ends with the main character alone on a roller coaster, and I've actually been going through that final thing, like frame by frame, almost recently, and it ends with her just like just sort of peeking at the edge of a smile. And so, so despite the fact that she's alone, it 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 feels like a hopeful ending to me, and it's a similar similar sort of trajectory that both of the women in these movies find a man that causes them to undergo a very radical shift in their life, but ultimately they're alone at the mm-hmm. end of it. Well, in Jade's case, uh, it is it is also a story about breaking free of a uh, of a patriarchal constraint. So, right. so she has to. Well, it would be wrong for her to end the story with a man. Yeah, because there were <laughs> the second time that she gives her dad buns. I'm like, you know what? He doesn't even appreciate it. Fuck him. Yeah. I just didn't want her to be dutiful. I didn't want her to dote. I was mad. Like you're just being a 22 year old girl. Don't suck up to him. You know, I, so I, if she had ended up with a man at the end, I would have been profoundly disappointed yeah. because I'm already a bit cheesed off about how she feels so compelled to be dutiful that she has to tamp down her own personality and her, or her own independence. So I'm really glad she didn't end up moving in with someone in the last frames of the uh, yeah. movie. And yeah, the last frames are really her hanging that Marilyn Monroe tapestry on her on her window and and so yeah I, I i feel like she knows where she wants to be and and she's going to continue to her her career as an actor and it's all good i snorted very loudly in the scene where jade goes on the date with the with the gay guy and in order to get her mom to never pursue that line of dating again she says he made me pay yeah. <laughs> oh, I loved it. What a clever way to get out of uh, <laughs> I, that. Could be the most insulting thing that, that a man. I was wondering if that was the guy's <laughs> suggestion. Because obviously he's he, got, he he's, had a strategy. He's very practiced yeah. in, in how he <laughs> is, can buy himself six months and yeah. then a year. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and that, in that way, um, thinking about that specific encounter with the gay guy, have you guys seen The Wedding Banquet? Yes. Angley's no. film from 1993. It's almost like a reverse wedding banquet. Because like, that movie's about a gay guy who basically just pays this starving artist woman to marry him so that his parents will be happy, but all the while he's continuing his relationship with his boyfriend that he lives with and whatever. And so you sort of see both, with with these two movies, you see both sides of... Because like, I feel like maybe you could speak to this william potentially for the for the Asian, for the chinese men it's it's easier because it's just kind of like the the women are just forced into these relationships where the men can kind of have the pick and so whereas it seems like these two stories are telling well you know if you're a gay guy that cannot get out and it doesn't doesn't really go well when it does in, in the wedding banquet and then for for the women they just immediately get dis- disowned although although we, i guess we do have the brother character in this movie that isn't but it isn't really established why he was disowned it isn't but he's uh, and 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 they hint at him being successful in whatever business venture he went into mm-hmm. but that's but that's not enough for them to welcome him back right and they don't even know that he's dating a white woman yet even though she's not white she's a chinese descent who doesn't speak mm. cantonese yeah. yeah you wanted me to alexander you said you should, i should you i could speak to 
like uh, just the perspective of whether it's easier for Chinese males in a in a this type of a household. Yeah, or? I guess I guess just in general, life is easier for men. But but do you have any specific insight into into that whole aspect of like trying to form relationships? Like, were your parents eager for you to to date a Chinese woman or? Uh, I probably won't get into it in detail because it's it's so painful. <laughs> I think what I could speak to is uh, is that there's a different set of pressures for Chinese sons, yeah, because they're because it's built up to it's built up into this thing where you know you're you're carrying on the family name, etc. Right? Okay, so yeah, I can so I totally understand like in in the wedding banquet um, that character I can totally understand that it is. Uh, it is just like the end of the world for his parents to to discover that he's gay, that he's not going to uh, fall into that typical role of the son who who carries on the bloodline and and so forth, right? Yeah, yeah. And that that one I would presume is is fairly autobiographical for for Ang Lee. For, for Ang Lee, yeah. you think so? Yeah. Okay. At least to some degree, because I mean, I know he is gay. Is he? Is he? I've never heard that. I mean, I of course, it's totally possible, sure but uh, it, it's never shown up on my radar. Well, I've never thought of it. Anyone that would make the Hulk. Oh, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> what? That movie was so terrible. Are you saying that the Hulk is so gay? Yes. <laughs> now, can I comment on something that's a gaffe? And I don't know if you oh, guys... Oh, never mind. He's totally not gay. <laughs> or he could be bisexual or whatever, but I totally thought he was. Maybe because of that movie in Brokeback Mountain. I don't know why I would have to assume that... <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a man who makes two movies about gay people is immediately gay. <laughs> anyway. Well, based on his filmography, he's he's obviously he's obviously gay, a swinger from the seventies, and um, and he turns into a green monster. And he can who loves Jane Austen. And he yeah. can tame tigers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and he eats men. <laughs> oh yeah. That's oh. right. Richard Parker. <laughs> Eats and drinks them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so Chris, you were talking about, you, you spotted a, a gaff. The first date that Jade goes on, she says, her mom does her hair, and she says, oh my God, I look like Connie Chung. Yes, which I, I thought was hilarious. I thought was hilarious, too. And I wonder if if, uh, and if anybody else will remember that reference uh, out of outside of our generation. Unlikely. <laughs> but then, the she goes... <laughs> You don't know who Connie Chung is? Oh, really? Okay. Oh, she's married to Maury Povich. And that probably doesn't mean anything. And she was um, a female news anchor. Maury Povich, like Maury. The, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. They're married. <laughs> Does he still have a show? I think so. Oh, man. So when Jade goes for the audition to do the news, you know, when she's wearing her suit, yeah. her agent or whomever says, oh, you look just like that Connie Chung, but... The, the lips of the actress aren't saying Connie Chung. And so I rewound it four times to figure out, was there like a local person? Was there another Asian person that she was going to say, you look just like? So the audio says Connie Chung and the yeah, lips I do not. I noticed, I noticed that. I was wondering if it was... But we already said Connie Chung once. So it wasn't like yeah. we d- couldn't get clearance for Connie Chung or we were yeah. worried that Connie Chung's mm. rep would, uh, you know, sue Mina Shum. So I wonder what happened that the second Connie Chung reference... There's, is not said uh, by the actress. Yeah. So possibly maybe they just didn't have that in there the first time. I There is another instance where there's kind of bad ADR. There's like a family dinner and like the first one. The gay guy shows up. Yeah. And he has his he has his back to the camera when he enters the frame. But he, he when he's talking, it's like it's bad ADR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. It was just the levels weren't right. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that right away. Did you guys notice in the credits that they had to pay for Kung Fu fighting? Yeah, I did. <laughs> She's just singing it while sweeping at one and point. And a Sonic yes. Youth song, which I don't recall what Sonic Youth song yeah, was know. playing. I didn't catch that. Yeah. I, um, firstly, um, I, I admire that uh, independent filmmakers can get the resources together and, and, and make a movie. Um, I think paying for Kung Fu fighting is a, a bad use of resources. Yeah. <laughs> 100%, dude. <laughs> That that does not need to be referenced in a movie ever again. You think it should have been turning Japanese? Rush Hour obviously <laughs> did it best. <laughs> I hate how when whenever there's um, whenever there's like a, a martial arts movie that's been imported to uh, to North America, they all they almost always put kung fu fighting on the trailer. Just, yeah. yeah, it's awesome, dude. Come on, <laughs> it's not it's not like insulting or terrible or you know there's there's no negative it's just discussion around kung fu fighting it's the best <laughs> i i'm happy listening to the song just outside of the context of a martial arts movie do but. you have it in your itunes <laughs> <laughs> uh, every morning the alarm goes off it's uh, is, that, kung fu is that the oh, top shit, of my to karaoke cue <laughs> Uh, that will yeah you may have blown the budget for this podcast yeah. with that we're gonna get sued can i uh canadian film really started to take off at this point uh in well in canada but certainly in vancouver so double happiness first english language canadian movie i saw in the movie theater oh, well. dance me outside came out the same year and then there was a series of uh whale music margaret's museum there was even a thriller called screamers with peter weller and what's his name, Roy Dupuy, who's been in a number of French-Canadian productions. So it was a time that John Poser, Lynn Stopkowicz, Bruce Sweeney, uh, Gary Burns, there was a, like a six-year period where there was a Canadian movie coming out at least once a year, which it certainly didn't happen earlier in the 90s, and I don't recall it ever happening in the 80s. So and when you say coming out, you mean like theatrically, like, yeah, and like like people were actually going to see it, kind yeah. of, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. And people, well, obviously, people were talking about Kissed, that really put uh, Canadian movies on the map. And you guys have already talked about Exotica, yeah. uh, which mm-hmm. is around that time as well. Yeah, there was um, uh, around that time the movie theater where I was working, uh, which was um, outside of the corporate stream. Uh, the, the owners um, built a new theater, the um, the Fifth Avenue. And the original plans with that was that they would dedicate one screen to Canadian movies. Wow. Yeah. So, so it was at a time when it seemed like mm-hmm. this, the output was, was coming. And anyway, that, uh, but that didn't uh, work out in terms of having access to stuff. And, and then that, that theater is now just part of the corporate chain. And it's, it's also not doing that either. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Double Happiness and Dance Me Outside came out the same year because it's dealing with two different... Uh, cultural groups that were definitely underrepresented in film, certainly Canadian film. So I think it'd be interesting to, uh, at some point, I'd like to review Dance Me Outside or rewatch it just to see if it holds up. Because I remember really enjoying it and thinking, oh, good, it wasn't too Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that the acting wasn't terrible. All right. Uh, hey, we're going to go to our uh, two recurring segments, uh, the first of which is what makes it Canadian? Uh, you could, If you go to our... Product of Canada tab on our website, you will uh, see our, our growing glossary of things that define Canadian movies. Did you find anything that was 
distinctly Canadian or identifiably Canadian about double happiness? Uh, in that park scene, there were some totem poles. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Are totem poles unique to Canadian indigenous cultures? But do we Primarily find them coastal, I think. Coastal, yeah. I think. Yeah. I guess just since they've been just so completely stepped out like even more so than they have been in canada in the u.s you don't really i don't i don't really associate them with america i don't either no well certainly wouldn't be like the um like the native tribes that were on the on the plains i don't think that's part of their culture no No. it has to be a culture that was in a place with tall trees right (laughs) i'm gonna blow your minds by something totally obscure that only an english major from sfu who graduated in 94 would catch in Jade's room, she has a poster for The Stone Angel, which is a Margaret Lawrence book that all English literature majors read in the 90s. And I presume Margaret really? Lawrence is Canadian? Yes. It's part of the whole Ethel Wilson, Alice Munro, um, ah. Margaret Atwood surfacing. You know, It was kind of feminist. And so anyone that went to school in the early 90s had to read Stone Angel. And uh, Jade has a poster of that in her room. We can put that under, I think we had a category started where we were talking about like references to Canadian cultural icons or something, but certainly it goes under there. Thanks. We should turn to our um, made up and arbitrary rating system. Alexander, what should we rate this out of? I don't know if we're at 47 or 51. So let's go with 51. Chris, how many leaves are you going to give double happiness? Uh, 44. Nice. Nice double digit Double happiness. Nice. Except that four in Chinese culture death. means death. Oh, so you but, have just, but four plus four equals eight, and eight is super lucky. Wow. That, no, that, that doesn't work that way. I don't know. We're, we're, Math's we're, not my strong suit. We're wrapped in some sort of, um, some loophole of, uh, of cultural <laughs> meaning now. Um, but yeah, I'm going to give it 33. Hmm. 88. Nice. Okay. And so... <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, you called it a C-plus earlier... Yeah. So C plus equals 44 out of 51. Well, then I started the, rethinking that it was, it was fresh. I think, I think in my heart I can't not give it a higher rating. Yeah. Because it just meant something in 1994 because it was the start of something new and exciting in the Canadian film scene. So I rethink the C plus. Right on. <laughs> oh, um, and then I'm going to give it like an 8 out of 51 for the quality of leaves, the quality and quantity of leaves in the movie, because there weren't really that many leaves. Hmm. Maybe it's just the, the season it was shot in? There were cherry blossoms. There were, there were cherry blossoms Very and there pretty. were needles, mm-hmm. but no leaves. Not, <laughs> not many leaves. All right. Okay. <laughs> Great. That uh, concludes our talk about double happiness. Um, our website is filmedincanada.net. You'll find other content there you can find our old episodes you might find us or you will find us if you look on the uh, itunes store as well um we also have an email at filmedincanada at gmail.com and uh i'm on twitter at married to a fly when is william going to reveal his twitter handle you uh, you teased us last week with that so i've it's... been i've been pressuring him to come up with to come up with an account name whether or not that account name would be taken and whether or not he will ever actually sign up is a question but yeah and we will find out maybe on a future episode (laughs) all right hey thanks for sticking around uh we're just gonna talk about movies we've been seeing lately uh 
Chris, do you want to go first? What have you been seeing lately? Uh, I saw the documentary De Palma. It is uh, directed by Jake Paltrow and uh, Noah Baumbach. It is for people who like Brian De Palma films. It might be too dry for people who want something more visually interesting. It's not, you know, The Kid Stays in the Picture or one of those other documentaries about uh, the movie industry that's very flashy. It's really just a talking head and none of his colleagues are interviewed, so it's just De Palma going through movie by movie chronologically from when he started to his last picture. So you'll either find that interesting or you won't. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I loved it. He's not as cranky as I thought he would be. He's pretty thoughtful. And it was just interesting to review his whole library and know he says such a brilliant thing that everyone said that his work was derivative of Hitchcock's, but who wouldn't want to be like Hitchcock? He thinks Hitchcock created a film language that could be comparable to, you know, Shakespeare's contribution to the English language, that it's such a profound contribution to film that you couldn't, you can't make a movie that doesn't have a Hitchcockian element. Mm-hmm. So if he's borrowing from one of the best, how could that not be something, you know, of worth? Did he say that? Uh, he made the connection between, between Hitchcock and Shakespeare? No, that was me. Oh, that was you. Cause, oh, that's really nice, <laughs> Oh, Chris. thanks. Yeah, yeah. you, you no, can I, use that. We will use it. Well, you'll be using it. It'll be your words being spoken by you. I think that's uh, a nice um, observation. I think because like movies are still this newish kind of art form or language, uh, people don't really give it the um, the weight of something that is 400 years old. Uh, but certainly the way that we uh, communicate and talk to people and, and understand things are shaped by movies. Um, and uh, And you're right, like what Hitchcock contributes to that language is really significant. So, yeah, why wouldn't we just use those tools again? Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he doesn't, if you, when you go through his whole library, you realize that he doesn't, uh, doesn't always hit. But there are at least four movies that I would watch in their entirety multiple times. If I saw it on television, I would watch it right through to the end. Uh, so he's got some movies Carrie that and are... Carrie Blowout are fucking incredible. I think Blowout's... I think it should have been given the same kind of respect as the conversation, oh, yeah. and it wasn't. And I don't know why. Or and blow re- up. Yeah, and reviewing the clips in the documentary, I felt a little indignant that it has, is a movie that's kind of buried and no one talks about it. It's but it's starting to come really around, good. Though, I think, like because Criterion released it in the recent, relatively recent future, um, and then there's a podcast called The Canon where these two film critics talk about, basically debate whether or not a particular movie should be included in the, mm-hmm. in the canon of great films of all time. Um, and I, mean, I don't know what their listenership is like, but they certainly voted it into the canon. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's fantastic. I love Blow. Let's go around the room quickly. Any favorite, or, any favorite De Palmas or, or Guilty Pleasure De Palmas? Scarface. Really? Yeah. Wow. I fucking love that movie. It's ridiculous. There are lines from that movie that I still quote with my friend who lives in Florida now and uh, and with my husband. I just, I, that movie's preposterous. I love it. So, yes, I will watch that again and again and again. I think Carrie's, Carrie's probably my favorite. Oh, okay. 
Uh, I've a soft spot for The Untouchables because it was the first uh, rated R movie that I saw in a theater, and when I uh, I convinced my sister to take me to it because <laughs> I because <laughs> I needed an adult to take me. <laughs> I think you and I were talking about Femme Fatale and how we both saw it by ourselves at Tin Town when it came out. Right. And I just thought it was delicious. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of Euro sleazy and fun, and I always like a you know really strong female lead. I loved that movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it since. I would love to rewatch it and see if I am still mm-hmm. tickled by it. I suspect I would be. Yeah. I yeah I enjoyed that one a lot, and I. The only reason I didn't get it on DVD or, or Blu-ray when it initially came out was they didn't include the trailer on the disc. And I, cause I just find the trailer as enjoyable as the movie. And I just, I wanted them together. Otherwise right. I was not going to get it. But you have YouTube now, man. I know, but it's, it's different. When you have it on, on a solid, uh, on physical media, it's there forever. Someone, but now you will never have it. Someone can't take it away from me. Well, <laughs> you think they're ever going to reissue Femme Fatale? And if they do, will it will it be guaranteed that they include the trailer? I will. I'll wait until Criterion appreciates it. And <laughs> that's they've got a couple. They've got what? Sisters and Blood, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Alexander? Have you been seeing anything lately? Yeah. Um, oh, well, I now, guess... did you notice I did that in the present tense again? Uh, we talked earlier. I, I spoke in the present tense about something that has happened. I should have be asking you, have you. Have you been seeing anything lately? Yeah, I said, have you? Yeah, have you been seeing anything? I don't know what tense that is. The blue perfect. I know it seems like it's it's ongoing, right? It's like, are you still seeing something? Are you still seeing a movie? What I mean to say is, did I wear, you watch? I wear something? Google Glass and I just have movies going all the time. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, I have been yeah. seeing many things while we've been Great. talking, actually. But did you? But talking about movies, did you finish watching something a while ago, and then you want to recall it for us now? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so, Double Happiness was a movie directed by a woman, and there's uh, an organization. I don't know, some sort of nonprofit. I think they're called like Women in Film, something like that. And so they have this sort of pledge on their website this year, where it's like. Uh, 52 films by women and so the goal if you sign up for the pledge is to watch a, a movie a week by either a female director or a female writer wow. and um, so I've been trying to do that and I'm, I'm like I'm on course right now I think I'm like one week behind maybe but um, as part of that I watched The Hurt Locker recently which I hadn't seen before and um, it was fantastic I have not seen that I'm embarrassed to say I have yeah, not seen that it's really good there's a few scenes in particular that uh, that stuck out of my mind. There's there's a there's a scene where this sort of innocent bystander gets strapped with explosives and just thrown out into a square, and these American soldiers who are bomb diffusers have to go in and and try and save him. And like it's just so tense. You're like because he's they're all, they're all, he's all padlocked up, and they're like this really thick steel and he's trying to clamp off the locks it's like is he gonna save him or not and it's just like devastating it's so good and um it's just interesting watching watching movies directed by women both for the ones that are very focused on the female characters but then also the ones that only focus on men and um what what can be revealed from that from that differing perspective i mean i think Catherine bigelow in in the hurt locker is really able to humanize these men in a way that that you know maybe something like um 
um, what am I thinking? Kubrick's Vietnam movie. Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket. Like, yeah, like you really feel those characters in that movie, whereas in a lot of more movies, like there's just so much machismo and and that aspect of it. But you really feel the impact of you know just day after day in this hellscape that that that, that has on these men, and it's not just about the the bombacity and the and the and the uh, the fighting. Um, yeah, so the Hurt Locker is really good. And I just want to say that that's a very noble goal to do 52 films by women. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's been good stuff. I mean, do you do you log your viewing on the website or anything like that? Uh, not on that website, but on I have a Letterboxd account, and so I've kept a separate list of everything that I've been watching there. Nice. Um, yeah, it's good times. Uh, how do the how do people find your Letterboxd account? Uh, same as my Twitter, Married to a Fly. All right. Yeah. What's going on, William? Put anything into your eye holes recently? <laughs> no. How many exactly. images have you projected into your ocular membrane recently, William? Well, uh, I had there was one sequence of images I absorbed into my eyes. Uh, that was the documentary Raiders, uh, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. Uh, right. Now, do you know the story about Raiders: The Adaptation? Um, in the eighties, uh, a bunch of kids, I think, in Mississippi. Um, so they made it their project to uh, recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so they, they spent their uh, high school years, um, pretty much like their, their entire summer vacations for seven years, um, restaging a lot of the scenes. They taught themselves filmmaking in order to do it. Uh, they were able to break down Raiders of the Lost Ark from memory because this was before you had DVDs and, and videotape. They recruited their friends as well, and so a lot of people got involved. It came to um, came to wide attention when Eli Roth found it, and he gave it to Harry Knowles for his um, for one of his film festivals. Um, um, and I and I did uh, fortunately get to see um, their film some years ago, and and it's amazing. Like it's amazing what these kids pulled off. So the Raiders film is uh, the Raiders documentary is. Um, it, it kind of tells that story, but it catches up with these characters as adults, and they reunite to film the the scene that they didn't get when they were kids, uh, which is the which is the fight on the airfield in, in front of the uh, the flying wing. Um, so they they raise money to shoot this scene, like at a professional level. We catch up with their lives, like after um, after they were kids and growing up. And uh, they're falling out, and then their professional paths and stuff like that. So, it's I found it really interesting to like to hear what these what these guys went through, um, how they balance like what they would do career wise with what their uh, what their dreams were as as kids. Um, I didn't care so much for the. Uh, it felt like this art this artifice of um, of watching them. Um, filmed this last scene. It, it's, it just felt like a lot of reality TV shows where people have to get together to complete this one thing, and then and and, and that's like this ultimate goal. Um, but uh, but I think it, it is well, the way it's presented in the film. It is true that it sort of represents something for these characters, like in, in terms of uh, like completing something that that meant a lot to them, and also um, the, finding that creative outlet for that gave them joy. Um, so I think it's, it's a good documentary. Um, and, uh, and the interesting thing is when they show you the, the scene that they shoot, 
um, under the uh, closing credits, they show you the scene that they shoot versus the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it is it's so close. Good it's, God, it's, really? It's so polished. Wow. Yeah. But it, it does um, lack some of the magic when you see the footage of the kids. So it's just it's right. one of those interesting things where the more polished it is, the, the less magical it is. Like Gus Van Sant's Shot for Shot remake of Psycho? <laughs> What's the point? I haven't seen that. What's the point? (laughs) Well, I guess, uh, I mean, bring it back to the, the, what you were saying about Hitchcock. Like if you see something that is the, uh, that is like a prime example of how to do it, um, is it, is it not worth the effort to see if you can also match it just to see if like as an exercise, can this be done by given the tools that I have? For a film thesis, but I don't think for for a theatrical release. I just don't think it's very interesting to watch the same movie, especially when Vince Vaughn look, just looks drunk and puffy. Seeing <laughs> <laughs> the Psycho remake? Yeah. Oh well. I quickly wanted to mention another movie that I saw recently, um, Red Road, by Andrea Arnold. I'm I'm blanking on her name, but the actor in it is the like crazy sister of the stark people in game of thrones if you guys watch game of thrones kate dickey does that ring a bell to anyone not at all no. she's been in she was in prometheus oh she was in the witch recently if you guys saw the witch no the trailer looked good and yeah. then it got kind of lousy reviews i wanted to see uh, it good i thought it got pretty good reviews okay yeah it, it's definitely worth checking out Okay. Um, but yeah, so she's a um, she's like a CCTV camera operator slash observer in um, somewhere in the UK, and she sees a person on these cameras that she was not hoping to see uh, ever again in her life, kind of thing. This guy gets out of jail. You don't know the exact circumstances of it until like very late in the movie, but just really fucking good movie. It's like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, Is it I don't, a thriller? Yeah, to an extent, but it's also it's it's just dealing a lot with grief and. Um, but yeah, there's 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 a fundamental twist to it, at least in my mind, just because I had a very specific reading of who this person that she sees on the screen is. I had a very specific understanding of what that was, but it turned out to be something completely different, and um, really excellent movie. Red Road. Yeah. Hmm. I would definitely recommend checking that out. It's like a daycare. Can you hear them with your headphones yes. on? Yeah. Jeez. It's all good. Great. Okay, I think, well, that wraps up our talk for uh, this week. Chris and Alexander, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we'll talk again too. Cool. <laughs>